0: hello and welcome to the Danyan noonan podcast where i interview tech founders and innovators to learn the inspiring human stories behind the game-changing tech we use every day For today's episode, we're heading back in time, so please excuse the audio because I'm not even sure I had a good microphone back then, but it's a fascinating conversation with Philip Rosedale, founder of Second Life and co-founder of High Fidelity, which specialises in real-time spatial audio. We discuss how as a child Philip was fascinated by the idea of virtual worlds and how with a background in physics and engineering he set about creating Second Life which launched in 2003. It grew massively as the internet took off and as technology and the world finally caught up with Philip's vision. And even today, almost two decades on, Second Life is populated by one million active users whom over the years have generated hundreds of millions of dollars in income through selling virtual goods and services. It is a fascinating, wide-reaching conversation where we also discuss the future of VR and audio and how tech can be used to create a better, and more equal world. Here is my conversation with Philip Rosedale. With all my interviews, I like to go back in time and find out what you were like growing up. Can you tell me a bit more about your childhood?
1: Well, sure. <laughs> I was a very nerdy kid. Um, I read a lot. I definitely was a reader. That was kind of my escape. Was definitely books. And um, when I was, I think like fourth or fifth grade, I started, you know, doing those electronics kits, you know, that that you do. And so I got really into electronics. My dad had a bunch of cool like woodworking tools and things. And so um, from an early age, I was reading a lot and I was making things, you know, in the garage. And then getting into electronics. And then when computers became available. Um, you know, which for me was really quite early. Um, I was able to get like cheap, you know, swap meet computers and start learning to program.
0: What were your influences? Like, was there a particular person or was it a family relative or were you reading books that were inspiring you to start programming?
1: It's a good question. You know, my dad was a pilot, a Navy pilot. And so the kind of how things worked aspect of stuff, like I can remember him showing me a car engine and buying like a Plastic model of like a V eight car engine, and helping put that together with him. And uh, you know, he had a, a a model airplane that we made out of balsa wood with a motor. You know, that you'd sort of back then you didn't have remote control, so I suppose you'd just fire it up and let it go. <laughs> it would take off forever. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I was very interested in the way things worked. You know, and I think that led to. The interest in kind of simulating or building things with electronics, and then later to computers. But the 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 interest in computers was really self-discovered, I think, because of electronics. Like computers were the coolest possible thing, uh, you know, in the nineteen eighties. You know that anyone could do with electronics, and so I was that was a natural fit.
0: Were there any particular events? So growing up, you were able to have a computer at home. Were there any particular events that kind of shaped your formative years?
1: Well, I mean, there were a million kind of gadgets and machines that I built as a kid. You know. Put a gasoline motor on a wooden go kart, like the Boy Scouts had. You know, you build go karts, but I put a gas engine on mine. <laughs> it was like quite <laughs> spectacular the idea of it. I also remember really wanting to be an astronaut, like so many kids. So I had this dream of, you know, building a spaceship. But then I think, is because I was so into engineering and such, I, I realized that it was rather hopeless. You know, that building a spaceship would be very difficult, <laughs> and you know, even even for somebody as enthusiastic as I was about gadgets and things. And I think that was one of the things that as computers became available, I began to realize, hey, wait a second, you know we could like simulate worlds inside computers and those worlds could be quite big. and we could go in there and do things in them. Uh, but you know, formative moments, I mean, there were a lot of experiences with computers that were formative for me. Um, being able to see those very early fractals, you know, if you remember, on computers, we all had the Mandelbro set, you know, that beautiful circle that everybody remembers in a yeah. calendar, right? And there was early, there was a very early program on Windows that would let you, you know, zoom in. You, you could you could zoom into a little curly cube bit of it and then expand it again, and then zoom in and expand it and zoom in and expand it. And I remember sitting with a friend of mine who also became a computer engineer, and we zoomed in and expanded and zoomed in and expanded until the computer wouldn't do it anymore. And we back calculated and we realized that we were looking at a little 12 by 12 inch block of pixels, you know, down at the bottom, so to speak. And we figured out how big the original screen would have been from all the times we had zoomed. And that screen was as big as earth. I remember being like, you, you could build something the size of the earth in a computer with math and it would all be different. I mean, I was just like, hmm. I can't believe that that's possible.
0: So, besides your love of math and uh, programming, you're also really into physics. What what did you do your degree in?
1: I did. I took my bachelor's degree in physics at UC San Diego, um, which was a great place for physics. And I, I had a, a group of friends that I studied with that really motivated me to do it. It was competitive. I'd never really, as a kid, I'd moved around quite a bit because my dad was in the navy, and so I hadn't had a stable group of friends. And there, in college, I got this group of people that were really doing very well in physics, and so I was super you know, motivated to, you know, chase them and at least get as good of grades as they did so I could keep hanging out with them. But, uh, you know, I think the combination of computer programming and physics made me, especially they, they were a positive feedback thing because I realized that you might be able to use physics to, you might be able to use computers to simulate the laws of physics. And so that got me more interested in physics and how you might do that and, you know, kind of kept going and kept going with that. And then when the internet came around, which for me was the moment, you know, that was, you know, for my age, that was the moment for me. And when that happened, I immediately realized, well, wait a second, we've got to simulate the laws of physics, but we'll use the internet so that we can be in there with many other people and we can use many, many internet computers to all somehow do the simulation together. And so, you know, the physics, the physics degree plus the internet, all I could think about was there's got to be a place inside there that we can make.
0: The whole interest that you had in creating this other world, how do people react to that when you talk to them about it? I don't
1: think it made much sense to them at all. I mean, I've 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 told the story a lot that um, Second Life was a pretty abstract idea. I mean, people really didn't get it, but but a few people did. You know, for example, Mitch Kapor, you know, my mentor, the uh, original first round investor in Second Life, he really got it straight away. And obviously, there were people doing amazing work and writing about it. I can remember getting to San Francisco in um, 1994 and uh, going to the Exploratorium. And sitting in the back, you know, as this kind of kid who didn't know if I really belonged there yet, you know, and listening to these these uh, these these several people talking about VRML, which was this language in the early '90s, you know, proto Internet language that was designed to capture um, virtual worlds, and. I remember just kind of hiding in the back there. There was a, uh, oh, shoot, I can't think of her name right now. There's a famous, uh, Linda, Linda Stone, I think at Microsoft was this famous person who was kind of organizing a lot of stuff around VR in in the 90s. And uh, I just sat back there and marveled at how these people, you know, were, were putting together architectures and stuff around VR. So it was just a, it was perfect timing.
0: So do you think obviously the timing had a huge uh, part to play in all of this? Well, what got you to San Francisco? Because I'm sure San Francisco was the best place to be to do it as well.
1: You know, I followed my wife. She got a job in the big city. <laughs> we both had met in college, and she also had studied math and computer science. And, um, at that time, as the internet was beginning, she had the good fortune. I was kind of the crazy inventor, mad scientist, you know, uh, uh, husband. Uh, who was sort of doing all these really strange things, you know, kind of. And, and, and also, I should say, I had started my own company when I was in high school. So I had been very entrepreneurial from an early age as well. And so I had this company that with which I'd put myself through college and I was writing, uh, computer software for businesses. And then, um, Yvette got this job at Accenture, which was then called Anderson Consulting still. And they were doing big consulting gigs. Or the earliest internet companies like ebay she worked on the payment systems at ebay building a way of charging people's credit cards at ebay and so we, we we had this very interesting dual vantage point where she was in these big company contracts and i was this kind of crazy kid trying to do weird things and um so she got a job there and we both moved to san francisco and and by just again wonderful timing i got a little office for myself and my crazy projects and my 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 then uh, database business stuff right at the Caltrain station, right at Third and Townsend, three fifty Townsend. This wonderful brick building right at the downtown South of Market Caltrain station, in San Francisco. Which, if you know the history of the internet, you know it's kind of you know if the internet had a geographic location, it would it was pretty close to there. You know there were a few places where you know the, the internet began, and so I just was so fortunate. I went right next door, and there were these. Uh, Four, uh, four guys that were in a little glass office like mine, and so I could see them sitting in there. And I went over just to, you know, say hi. And they had in the back room, they had a table, and on that table were modems, you know, dial-up modems. But they were a stack of them, three or four feet high, and several stacks, like a little city model or something. So they had like hundreds of computer modems. And they had wires all plugged into them. And I said, I was joking. I said, what are you guys like? What are you, like drug dealers or something? I said, "You, <laughs> who's calling you? you know why, why do you have all these modems? And, uh, and they said, well, we're an ISP. And I said, what does that stand for? And they said, well, it stands for Internet Service Provider. And I said, I knew what the internet was. I said, why would normal people want to go on the internet? <laughs> and they were like, well, you're going to find out. And so I was just there. Yeah.
0: Um, so this was 1994. You just moved to San Francisco. What was the business you first worked on when you got here?
1: Well, when I first got here, I actually started trying to find customers for this. I wrote a my entrepreneurial thing that I did when I was a teenager was that I wrote software for car dealerships that helped them print contracts because back then, I couldn't you had to fill this stuff out with a pen. Believe it or not, all those forms that you have to do when you buy a car. And so I actually wrote this software because I just saw the opportunity I had by, by chance. I met and had that, like I had a weekend job working at a car dealership because I used to love cars and I used to work on cars. So I was very comfortable with cars. And so I wrote this software for these car dealerships. So when I originally came to San Francisco, my original little company from high school, I was looking for new customers in San Francisco. But, but as I said, I met these guys next door and you know, they were like, they gave me this cable over the wall to the internet. And they said, you know, you can send a packet of information from any one computer in the world to any other computer in the world in the following way. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. This is, this is so awesome. I don't even know what to do.
0: Didn't you have a company called Freeview that was then, is that the database no. company and it was sold to real? Yeah, Yes. Yeah, sorry, sorry. So, sorry. That's so the, the on, database
1: company, technically, it was always called the same company, but the thing that I built, first thing that I built was Freeview on the internet. And so... Um, I always had wanted to do this crazy virtual world thing, and in fact, I had been building VR hardware, great, very, very interesting VR hardware, big, monstrous apparatuses um, in my garage and then in my in my in my office, um, all the way back to college. so in the in the early 90s or in, like I graduated college ninety two. As soon as I saw the internet in 94, I realized uh, one. one was that it was going to be possible to build Second Life, you know, to build something like that. The second thing I realized though, was that even as crazy as I was about doing weird things early, it was too early because the modems, they were just not fast enough to, to, to deliver like a 3D virtual live world. And so I told all my friends, I'm going to build the matrix, although the movie wasn't out then. Although when the movie came out, I said, yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, I'm, I'm going to build a big virtual world, but I'm not going to build it now. I have to wait until computers get faster at graphics. And the internet gets faster. And so what I, what I said was, but in the meantime, I got to do something else that's fun. And nobody had figured out how to send video like this over a modem. And that was this engineering problem that was kind of a physics and a compression problem. And so I started working on how to send video over the internet. Believe it or not, back then in 90, this was kind of early 95, I started working on this. Nobody had done that. And so I used kind of some of my physics know-how and a bit of thinking about optics and about graphics and stuff. And I and I came up with a way to send really bad video, but you know, it was the old black and white style sort of video that we remember from the earliest days of the internet. And I built this thing called Freeview that was cool because it just let you click on people's faces. It was, it was kind of like an early social network. It was just a big list of who was online and you could click on them. And, you know, a fun story about that is that the very first people who used it were ham radio operators. They discovered it and they found that it was such a fun idea that they could go make a list of people they had communicated with in different countries to them Sending packets over the internet was a lot like using the radio. They just loved the idea that they could reach out and say, "I spoke to someone in Moscow," and they would send me emails of all the people they had contacted with Freeview. And so it was quite fascinating. And so that was the first thing. So that actually brought me to the attention of a broader community. Somebody I think wrote about it in a couple of magazines or something. And then we ended up. I ended up meeting Rob Glazer, um, who was the CEO of the company called Real Networks, which was then called Progressive Networks.
0: And then from there, obviously it wasn't too much longer before you started Second Life. Can you tell me about the process of setting it up? How, who did you recruit? How did you recruit them? And did you have investors sure. early on?
1: I didn't have investors early on. What happened was Real Networks became a bit su- quite successful. Um, so Real Networks went public and I was the CTO of it. And so I was there for three and a half years from 96 to 99. And um, in the middle of 99, um, the company had gone public, so I had made a bit of money from that, enough to be able to go and at least do my own thing for a bit. And um, I told Rob, I got to go do, I got to go build a matrix. And even Rob, who didn't like people to leave uh, and remains a friend of mine, you know, he was like, all right, you've told me about it so many times, I'm not even going to try to stop you. But I went back to San Francisco and I found this office in uh, Lind- on Linden Street, on Linden Alley, Uh, in Hayes Valley in San Francisco. And it was a, it was a uh, shell condition warehouse that was absolutely the most awful place you could imagine trying to set up a business office in. And um, it was cheap. And I moved into that space. And my very first employee was one of my friends from physics that I had studied physics with. He was just finishing his PhD and he said, all right, you know, I'll come work on crazy internet stuff. And so that, uh, And the rest is history. But as you asked, I did not have investors at the outset. We worked for about a year and probably up until we were about maybe 10 people um, on my on my nickel, um, on my initial investment. And then Mitch Papor, as I mentioned, was the person who came in and, well, he had already known me, but he came in and said, you got to take some investment from me on this. And this is going to, you know, this is great. It's going to make it his his I think belief in it as such a smart person, you know, who had been such a part of the internet, you know, and just knew everything about everything. It was so good, you know, to hear him say, this is going to work. You know, I thought, okay, let's keep
0: going. So with that, with the kind of confidence of him behind you and the team assembled, what were some early successes as in what was your kind of benchmark for what made you feel like, okay, this is taking off quite, you know, quite well. And what were some of the early obstacles that you had to overcome?
1: Well, the very first thing that we did was a kind of a retelling of the Genesis story almost, you know, we made like water. (laughs) We really did. We made water that had little ripples and waves on it. But you sort of had two servers, a bit like our Zoom pictures here. You had two servers that were just next to each other, but you could make a ripple in the water and it would spread out and it would go across to the other server. You know, So the ripple in the water would make it across between two machines and those machines were at different places on the internet. So that was one of the very first experiments we did. We'd, we'd leave the thing running and we'd come back in the morning and there'd still be little interesting waves on the water and we'd be like, well, this is all right. We've got this working. The really big second life moment that was everybody remembers was we built a bunch of capabilities. You know, it was it was this live environment that it, it had physics. You could lift something up and throw it, and everybody else would see that. You could run into each other, things like that. But we also built these building tools that would let you build things live. You know, like grab a box and stretch it, and like a ball. At the outset, we didn't really know whether this would be more developers building things that would be that they would later sort of publish in some way, like as a experience to be had in there, or as it turned out to be that the case, that it would be more like something everybody would use as a kind of a painting thing or something that they would, you know, that everybody would build their own stuff in there. And we had this board meeting where we showed off all of the kind of, we almost, we showed off a bunch of like almost combat features. You know, it was like running around and chasing each other and shooting things at each other and breaking things. We had a way to like, shatter things and blow things up and we were sort of demonstrating the capabilities of this multiplayer engine sort of thing you know that we had built and then halfway through the board meeting we went to talk about the financials and do the businessy stuff that one does in board meetings but i asked the team that was in the other room we had a great big screen on the wall and i said all of everybody just keep building weird stuff just for fun while we're sitting here talking about financials and in retrospect, so it's, and then we were all talking about the financials, but then we all realized that we were completely fixated on the fact that we were watching five or six people just building weird things. Like somebody made a big snowman, a big giant snowman. And then somebody else made little worshiping snowmen at the feet <laughs> of the larger snowman. And that was just such a random thing to do that we all sat there and looked up at the wall and we all said, I you get it. This is what this is going to be. This is going to be a kind of a, a building thing. We're all going to build here. And I knew that was what I wanted at the outset, but I hadn't had quite the confidence to believe that you could do it, that people could just like kind of freestyle, not play games, but just make stuff. And that was the moment where we all were like, now we know what Second Life is going to be like.
0: What was the initial mission? I know back in the day everyone talked about it being a almost like a gaming platform, but what was your mission? for Second Life when you started it?
1: The mission was always to build an enormous space that was physically real so that you could wander forever. You could see to the horizon. You know, the sun would set on this thing and you could just keep walking and it would be a living, um, rich environment. I used to talk about it as being like a forest, you know, like a big forest primeval that was evolving itself or something. So that was the original vision. I always believed that the other thing that was necessary, which is, of course, very important later on, was an economy because I believed that the thing that would be so interesting would be that people would somehow make interesting things in there and then they would share them with each other and that some kind of a simple digital economy would be necessary as a sort of a record-keeping system. And in the same way that money developed as a means by which we would be able to trade interesting things with each other at a greater and greater distance, you know. So, so from the very beginning, I had the vision that it it had to be this gigantic living space. It had to have a lot of people inside it together. They had to all be able to go everywhere. You could walk anywhere, so to speak. And it had to have an economy so that the things people built, whatever the rules were, whatever the things they could build were, they'd have some way of buying and selling them from each other. So that was kind of the premise. But then, you know, as I saw, as we saw these different kind of moments, we knew that it was going to be for example, this majestic kind of building experience.
0: It's wonderful. It's funny because people do refer to a lot of new tech as either something that's playful or gaming or, you know, even today. And then you see actually people adopting it and using it and they find their own uses, which sometimes you can't even – anticipate. Um, so we've talked about kind of some of the earlier obstacles of, of getting up and running. Uh, how did people react to it? I mean, what were the press, what were, what were people saying about it back in the day?
1: I think, again, I think that the press people that were thinking about the long-term evolution of the internet into something that became more of a social environment of one kind or another, and obviously we're still in the middle of that, um, they got it. And so, you know, the people like John Markoff uh, in San Francisco or Dan Gilmore, you know, the people that were thinking about the internet got it and were happy to write about it and were interested in following it. A lot of the game developers, and I, I, I have to confess, I kind of emotionally developed a bit of chip on my shoulder over the years about this. The game developers would just say, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. I have no idea. There's, there's, there's no game here. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see where the game is. You have this weird open world. Why would anybody go there? Why not just hang out in the real world? So there was a, there was a real uh, kind of strong binary difference there. People either, and then as people began to sign up, only 1% or 2% of people that tried Second Life, and this is still true today, stayed. But the ones that stayed made their lives there and made a real impact and were changed by it um, almost, you know, to a person. And um, so it was really odd that way. It was this kind of very uh, narrowly appealing thing, but the impact for the people that it worked for was, was crazy. And it was crazy to be there and be in that, standing in those conversations and helping with those projects and stuff.
0: When I used to talk to people about Second Life, I, I got a lot of questions about the fact that it was virtual reality and you know how sitting in front of a computer wasn't healthy. Um, I, in my research for this interview, uh, listened to a panel talk that you did with Susan Greenfield, Baroness Susan Greenfield and Elon Musk. It was called The Universe, The Brain and Second Life from 2009, which was absolutely brilliant. I, I really did enjoy it. Uh, going back to that time... She, I think Baroness Susan Greenfield was very diplomatic, but she had a lot to say about how much time children, for instance, spend in front of computers. And that was back in 2009. What did you say, or how did you answer the questions about that?
1: What I said was, and and I think this is still precisely true today, although we continue to unravel the details of it. What I said was, what a person is doing in front of the computer is what matters. So, for example, if they're socially interacting with other human beings, well, that's a great challenge. I mean, even if you're using text or audio or video or whatever, you're still interacting face-to-face with another person, and you're going to have to negotiate that. And and I, I said that in particular, Second Life with its economy and its, its land system and stuff, its project-based kind of approach – naturally provides in many cases a more intellectually stimulating and challenging environment than for many people the real world does one of the points i made i think in that presentation was that and and i think we're wise to really think we should all be thinking even more deeply about this today with covid what i said was that it's very easy for humans to live in a very homogenous environment where everybody around them physically is like them and so things are easy that way you know and of course you can fall into the trap of believing things that aren't true or um, yeah, or not being sufficiently challenged, you know, not having to exhibit learning and compassion, you know, in your, in your interactions with others. But in Second Life, you were invariably sort of dropped into this crazy New York City of people from all over the world. And that to be, for example, financially successful, if you cared to do that in Second Life, would require a degree of interaction and negotiation and uh, uh, friend, friend building and, and stuff that was very, very substantial. And so that was the point that I made to her was that, um, that there were, a, but, but I didn't disagree with her at all, that there were certainly cases in which you could, for example, reduce your physical mobility and your engagement. By the way, I think that's still a huge issue uh, with computers. In other words, you could be less physical. You could be, you can move less, which is bad, you know, you're taking your body out of the equation. Um, and of course, you could play games that perhaps simplified the world. And of course, many of those games are actually awesome also. You know, one of my uh, advisors and, and friends now is Jane McGonigal, who's written a great deal about games and how games are good for the world. And in many cases, even games that aren't social are, can be wonderful, but there is certainly the risk that you can kind of simplify your life in a way that's very dangerous by just, you know, scrolling through photographs or something on the internet. And of course, that now has really come home to hit hard. And I think Baroness uh, Greenfield was, she was right to bring those concerns to the to that table. It's so interesting to look back on that with she and I and, and Elon, you know, talking about going into space.
0: What's so interesting is I think when you listen to the talk, had I listened to it in 2009, I, I would have thought that you and Elon probably had some ideas that were slightly out of reality. And, and now i they've been proved very true and Uh, and you've both worked on the same thing for a long time. In terms of reality, I um, spoke to Roni Abovitz. I've interviewed him before, and we talked about uh, virtual reality. And I I find that the more people who work deeply, who are deeply immersed in virtual reality, have interesting views on what they think reality is. So I guess my Mm. question to you is, what's your perception of reality?
1: I guess the question is, what is a place or what is a world, you know? When we share space together, we share—we all share the world together right now, at least until we all get to Mars with Elon. The, the nature of sharing a space together is that there is some common predictions you can make about what happens next. I wrote something about this where I said, physics is what happens next, <laughs> in a way. We can all agree that if I hold an apple and let go of it, well, we, we both know what's going to happen to it. And I think that idea of shared prediction And being in a space where you both can do the same thing and the same result will happen. That's this, that's one of the important senses of like a world. And so we are all in a place together without question, you know, as as human beings. We're in this world together. And it seems to exhibit these properties. Of course, it's delightfully interesting, you know, looking at simulation and physics and stuff to say, oh, are we in a simulated world? Right. Well, but the, the thing that matters most is that remarkably enough, we're all in more or less the same world together sometimes when people work on VR and especially AR, they fantasize about worlds in which everyone is living in a different world. And I actually think that's both probably not nearly so appealing as we might think, you know, rather horrifyingly drug-like or something. And then secondarily, that takes away the whole point of being here. You know, the whole point of being in a world together, I think, is to share a limited set of resources and each other and figure it out. You know, that's. If the world is a game and and if, and if we're meant to be here in some way, that, in that sense, that's that's it, right? It's to share the place together.
0: I like that analogy. With um, Second Life, you obviously, it grew massively and you had huge success. What was the competition like? Was there anyone trying to do something similar at the time?
1: There was a wonderful company that was called there.com. And it, it transitioned over time into a company that's now called IMVU and is still, um, is, is still doing quite well, as is Second Life. And, um, but that company at the time had this incredible army of really brilliant people. It was very intimidating. I found out about them and then I looked at their website and I called them and, and I called one of the guys there. I think he was their CTO and he sort of called me and talked to me for a few minutes. And then he called me back and he said, you can never call us again. You know, we're (laughs) editors with you. (laughs) And I remember trying to convince the CEO of that company at the time to not be so aggressively competitive with us, because I felt like it was so early, none of us were going to make it, you know, I sort of said, well, let's, let's all be friends and compliment each other when we're talking to the media. And then someday when we're fighting over customers and we actually have customers, well, we can take the gloves off and, you know, tear each other apart then. But uh, I, I was struck by how early we were, but yeah, there was this one company and, you know, the technology inside Second Life even today, is so remarkable that, um, and so advanced, so it was, it was so far ahead of its time and a bit early, um, you know which is why one of the reasons why it was hard you don't have a billion people using Second Life, you have, but a million people. Um, but yeah, there were, there were people doing but just a couple doing similar things, and their.com was this one that we really did have to take on head to head. and in the end, we, we won. Second Life got a lot bigger, and it got bigger because we let people do what they wanted to in the space. And we didn't try to make it a game and we didn't try to constrain them. And we didn't do a lot of the things that you hear designers talk about as being the right idea today. We didn't simplify it. We didn't, no, we didn't look for loops that would give you dopamine or whatever. We didn't do any of that.
0: And so, with Second Life, it, like I said, it grew massively. What were some of the highlights for you, or what are some of the highlights for you? I think you mentioned earlier about with one of the, the first companies you had, people would contact you. Do, do you get that now? Do you hear about marriages and businesses? Oh, sure.
1: I don't know. How many marriages. I think there have been like there's been like a quarter million marriages, and second- there's been some ridiculous number of marriages in Second Life, even now. What I'd like to do more of, and I'm sure maybe. Uh, uh, you, when you when you when you publish this, I'll, I'll get more requests for this. But I want to like officiate marriages. I never actually did that. There, there are people, who, there are people who made a it today make a wonderful business in Second Life out of out of being uh, the officiant at, at marriages. But yeah, I mean, it, for me, what was rewarding was to see the impact that it had on people, for sure, and it was very positive.
0: Uh, and what surprised you most about what people were doing in Second Life, if it's not too rude?
1: I always used to laugh at that question because I'd say, like, boy, it was intentionally such an odd thing. Like, the whole point of it was to be surprised, in a sense, you know, because it was this blank canvas. But there, there is a. It is a good question. Um, One of the things that was surprising, and it really made me think deeply about the sort of philosophical implications of this. I always figured that Second Life would be very abstract and futuristic, or something. You know, when you imagine a virtual world, or when you make a movie like The Matrix, or something about a virtual world, you you envision and you, you you present people as having gone off into a sort of design space that is altogether different from reality. And yet what happened in Second Life was, and, and I don't want to belittle it, there is spectacular excursions into the unknown, like in art in Second Life. There are whole categories in Second Life of art, you know, that is like critiqued, you know, it's thing called like hyper-realism, you know, there's these wonderful like areas of art in Second Life. But for the most part, what people built in Second Life was Malibu, Los Angeles, ah. and they built incredibly beautiful cantilevered homes that one might see, you know, on the cliffs in Malibu, and with Ferraris in the driveway. And I always thought, well, why would you build a Ferrari when you could build, you know, like a Land Speeder in the Star Wars? But if you actually give it a bit more thought, what you realize is that i was wrong i mean, of course of course you don't you you make first the things that you know best from the real world the things that have the most value to you so this idea of like moving first uh, moving first into virtual spaces by bringing those things that are of the greatest value to us from the real world into the space i think that's a learning that can be applied to a lot of internet or or systems design you know the 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 first people on youtube weren't the people that were doing abstract new art forms like you see perhaps more with TikTok today. The first people on YouTube were playing guitar and singing into the microphone. They were bringing things from the real world that were easy to kind of bring over and would immediately have value. So I think that's a strong learning from Second Life, and it was surprising.
0: I think we we underestimate with technology how uh, it kind of reflects society and the things that we might not see in our everyday. It kind of reflects how people emerge and do things differently. In terms of Malibu, I wonder if, because I think my understanding was that a large proportion of your audience or people using Second Life were from Europe. So I guess back then, you know, the fantasy was to have a home in Malibu because we all live in dreary England where it's raining all the time. But um, Moving on from Second Life. So you had huge success. How did High Fidelity come about?
1: So um, when we got to about 300 people at Linden Lab, and Second Life was quite successful. I felt that I might not be the right you know, long-term CEO for the job because I was such an inventor at heart. And so I went out and I found a new CEO, Mark, who was the first one after me. And I took off and kind of began wandering the earth, if you will, with my uh, now uh, co-founder in high fidelity, uh, Ryan. We had worked together. He had worked with me all the way from the beginning in Second Life. And so we, we took off and we were, we were joined by another wonderful co-founder, also an old friend, And the three of us started this series of unusual experiments that are really quite something. I hope to get more writing done about what we did. But we did some really fascinating stuff where we played around with work, open co-working spaces, but with an app. This was at the very beginning of apps being able to know where you were. And we had a co-working space where you'd walk in and your phone would tell everybody else in the place that you were a graphic designer and did they need any help? You know, We were doing all these odd things, trying to like get people to work together, which I think was very prescient. This was, this was around about 2010, initially, 2009. But in 2013, we were about 12 people working together on one of these crazy ideas. And what happened in 2013 was that the chips that are inside the Oculus Rift came out and because I was that had that electronics background I got one of the chips and I plugged it in and I hooked it up to an oscilloscope and I was I was holding the chip and turning it you know it's the chip that knows which way your head is turned and I was watching the line on the oscilloscope to see how accurate and how fast how how not laggy the movement was and as soon as I saw that I called everybody over This is in 2013, sometime, and I said, um, "This was right around the time that Oculus launched its uh, Kickstarter." And I said, "Look at this chip. Look at this line on the screen." I said, "We're gonna, we're gonna shut down everything we're doing, and we're gonna transition over, and we're gonna build a new virtual world like Second Life, but designed 100% for the Oculus Rift, for the the VR headset." And then, sadly, in some sense, the rest is history. So we (laughs) we worked on that for six years. And we've raised $75 million to work on that. And we were over a hundred people working on it.
0: And what are the lessons that you took from Second Life to High Fidelity?
1: Let people build things, right? This idea of live constructive effort being fundamental, you know, to the human experience. I mean a million other things. We wanted to we wanted to go farther with some of the good ideas of Second Life. Like I wanted to really make it one big world. I wanted to redo the economy. In a way that was even more like a cryptocurrency. In fact, we used a cryptocurrency in high fidelity. So, we had, you know, Second Life was and is still, in some sense, the largest uh, cryptocurrency, believe it or not. It's a huge, you know, $600 million a year market of a, a digital currency. Now it's run by a company, but it has a lot of the same exact properties of what we later saw with cryptocurrency. So, I wanted to do that again with high fidelity, and we did. Yeah, and we wanted to go farther. We wanted people to be able to hug each other. We wanted people to be able to talk with their voice with high quality. Yeah. We took a lot of stuff from Second Life and we wanted to kind of go farther with it.
0: Uh, and what are you working on now? I've seen you tweeting recently about obviously we're in weird times, you know, COVID's hit. Yeah. And uh, I want to know more about kind of the spatial side of things and, and what you're working on right now.
1: The very first thing that we began building when we started that new company, when I said we're going to do this, was you see, at that time, the Oculus Rift wasn't yet available. We knew it was coming and I was guessing that it would be good. Some ways I was right and in some, in many, in more ways I was wrong. But, um, I, we started working first on audio. In fact, we had these headphones. We took, we took regular, very nice headphones and we put those little chips on a circuit board on the headphones so that you could turn your head around while you were in a meeting, but you could hear everybody else in 3D, even across the room. So you could hear them coming from where they were across the room even in a meeting, with through the headphones. And so we started doing this work on spatial audio, on how to sit, because we knew that we were going to have these VR headsets where we needed to give you audio that sounded exactly like you were in the virtual world. And so we built this really substantial amount of technology. Probably the most tech, hard technology work that we did was this audio engine. And so then in 2019, we realized that the VR headset was not going to work for a lot of reasons. That, that, not to say, I, I don't mean to say... I'm a big believer in VR in the long term, but there was a lot of stuff happening in 2019. You could look at and really just say, "I hate to say it, but we're, we are not going to make it. You know, this ship is going to sink." Um, you know, uh, uh, for example, women and men don't use VR headsets the same amount. And to build any kind of a social environment, they would have to. So, you know, that was one example of just you can kind of just call it. You know, if you've only got you know, one you know group using something uh for for broad-facing technology and so we gave up on the headsets and then at the end of 2019 we said well if we're not going to do something on the headsets we've got to do something which reaches the largest number of people as possible you know we were kind of burned by this oculus thing of having there be you know a million not diverse you know a homogeneous group of million people having the headsets and so we decided to try and make the whole thing work over a browser starting just with audio and then we thought maybe we'd move on to 3D later but we just built this thing where we were dots on a web page but we could move around and turn you know we could steer ourselves around on the web page and the audio system would work perfectly we hoped over a browser and we got that working at the beginning of 2020 <laughs> and then covid happened and so then we were like well what do we do we had planned to build a big world around, kind of through the browser around that. But just having the audio working felt so good, especially in this time when we were suddenly all jammed in our, our bedrooms again, you know, that we decided to try and turn that into a product. And we've been working on that ever since. We've been doing different things to try and do that. And the most recent thing we're doing is we've, we've made our audio engine work in such a way that like as a web page developer, you can just put people... With live audio, kind of any way you want. You know, if you want to have a Google Doc and have everybody that's on the Google Doc, you know, talking to each other with audio in a circle, uh, you can do it with this. So we're, we're, we're actually just releasing it next week, an API that lets you do that. And then we also have a thing on our website, which is a space, that that sort of 2D space where you can just jump in. So if you want to have a party or after a Zoom call, you want to have everybody go and network together, you can just have them wander around in a space together where they can pair off and chit-chat just like they would normally in the real world in a space. So that's what we're doing right now with High Fidelity.
0: This is the most perfect timing. I think, you know, audio has had this kind of resurgence. Everyone's listening to podcasts. Everyone's trying to do everything via audio. Clubhouse is taking right. off. Do you, do you know Clubhouse, right? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's a perfect timing. Um, In terms of looking forward, so we've looked back a bit and we've looked at how COVID has kind of impacted your work. Looking forward, where do you think the future lies in both – or in all of the fields that you've kind of worked in the most? So with the kind of augmented reality, virtual reality rather, and with audio, where do you see the next couple of years going?
1: I guess the most important thing, well, I mean, gosh, there's so many. I mean, we're at a point where our ability to predict the future, you know, as futurists, which is a lot of what I think I've had to do over the years, you know, is think about what happens next, try to make some guesses. I think our ability to guess about what happens next is just it's so close to zero right now. I mean, it's ridiculous. If anybody'd say what what will the what will the world look like at the end of 2021, right? We have never been in a state of such lack of knowledge about that, right? I could tell you almost anything about the end of 2020, 2021, and you wouldn't be sure you should bet against me. Which is just amazing. But I think what COVID did, of course, was it forced us all to work from home and to work virtually. And you know, we we were avoiding it before. <laughs> We were inefficient. You know, we were saying, well, you know, you can still move to New York or San Francisco if you have to, and if you're working in tech. And all of a sudden that just got completely blown up with COVID. And that was wonderful because the good news there, right, is that we all learned that we can be productive at home. And that's wonderful because that means we can have a more diverse, more geographically distributed, more fair, more equitable work environment than we ever could have before. And that is not something that's going to go back. Because the cost, you know, the, the, the cost cutting alone for the big companies of letting people work at home combined with seeing that they're just as productive, you know, that's a train that's not at that, you know, the, the horse is out of the barn, right on that. Um, so what that means is we're going to all be exploring technology solutions that enable us to basically communicate with each other. And we're just at the beginning of that. And, you know, what we're doing with high fidelity is an example of that. And there's, you know, there's, You mentioned Clubhouse, there's Gather Town, there's Spatial Chat, there's Rally, there's 200 different companies right now that are doing things in um, shared presence, you know, that are putting people together. I think video is kind of broken. I've written about that most recently. Video is really hard, not to say that video is not compelling, but doing it right is almost impossible. You know, you can see me looking at your face and looking up at the camera and looking at your face, looking up at the camera. That can't be fixed. There's absolutely no way to fix that. Our eyes are incredibly sensitive to those movements. You know, that makes you not trust me because I'm kind of furtive. I'm looking away. It's just there's so many bad things happening. Um, so video is really hard. So I think VR and AR, we're going to take audio as a baseline, and we're going to find other experiential layers on top of that on, on audio that enable us to communicate, to build together, to, you know, to play together in a lot of different ways. And we're just at the beginning of finding that. And the, the forcing function of COVID has been, you know, cool in that regard, you know, we're, we're pushed to technologists now to really actually deploy this stuff. I mean, hundreds of millions of people came into video conferencing in the space of what, three months? I mean, it's just, just absolutely bonkers.
0: I feel like when I look back at the kind of work that you've done, and I feel very inspired by it, a lot of your work is empowering, it empowers so many. Where do you think we can go with technology in terms of making it a more equal world, like you were talking about? What's the next step? What can technology, you know, is it that we use education? I know you've discussed this before: education via virtual reality. What, What do you think the next biggest shift is in technology to empower more people?
1: I think, right as you said. Thanks for asking me that. I think one. As an experiential, I'm a technologist, so I jump to like the hard problems we still have to solve. And I want to say a couple of those, but experientially, education is the winner, right? Like, if we can get everybody educating themselves online, if we can figure out those problems. And of course, there are daunting problems. I have four kids, I have two of them still sitting at home right now, right now, this very moment um, in school, and it doesn't work well. You know, I mean, there are just a ton of serious problems with that. And those problems are worse if you have less privilege less income so that is a serious thing that we have to fix so there's a risk there's a risk that we split society even farther with online education but the possibility with online education is that we do create a level playing field and we are able to get the best teachers and the best the best teachers and the most interested students together in a way that is much more fair you know i'd like to see you know this country the united states get back to the promise of educating everybody an idea that we had, which I think was a very revolutionary idea, but we need to actually do it again. It's not right now. So I think I think that's kind of, I think just as you said, education is the big experience that can happen now. Of course, there's all kinds of entertainment stuff. You know, there's ways to have us do like live music. Live music is another thing that we're thinking about a lot because it's so important to our lives as humans. And live music just got unplugged uh, you know, in March of last year. I mean, it, it just shut down. And so, uh, and the experience of doing live music on Zoom is not live music. I mean, so we've, we've, we keep working on that. I'm excited about that. Technologically, though, there's a couple of things that technology can do that are a little farther out, like Second Life was at the time. One of those is basic income and cryptocurrency. If we modify the cryptocurrency systems that we're currently using, and I've written some about this lately, really into it. If we modify the cryptocurrency, not Bitcoin, not Ethereum, not the cryptocurrencies we're using right now. If we change the rules of those cryptocurrencies, many of the things we're talking about with basic income become very easy to do. So it's very interesting to imagine that we could re-engineer our economic systems as we go through this collapse that frankly we are going through. I mean, we are gonna we are gonna see a collapse. Of parts of economies, but that's a good thing because we can come out of that in a way that's more fair and more equal. And I think we can use cryptocurrencies that are specially designed to do that. Um, and then another thing is identity. A lot of the problems with Facebook, with with uh, manipulation, with AIs, a lot of those problems come down to identity. You don't know who people are on the internet. What was that famous? You don't know somebody's a dog on the internet. We all thought that was funny twenty years ago, but it's really not funny. <laughs> you know, you don't want to have somebody be a dog. Um, so. I think that there is an opportunity to do identity. It's a longer conversation, but I think there's a technical opportunity to give people a secure identity that is not their real name, not like Facebook, but that enables a much more fair trade of ideas and stuff on the internet. I I think we can move toward you know moderated environments that are very rich. Like you look at something like Clubhouse, they're going to struggle with moderation. Um, but I think that if we if we design new identity systems using technologies that we have kind of on the desk in front of us now, you know that we could you know pull from, I think we can do something there. I think I think the future versions of something like Clubhouse or clubhouse itself as it evolves can be a place where people find common ground in a way that is genuine and feels like standing in a town square. I think we can do that. I don't think the systems we have today do it, so, you know, don't jump on me if you're out there listening and say, but that's not what Facebook is. I agree with you. It's not what Facebook is. It's not what Twitter is today, but I think those systems can be changed. And I think we can be in a better place. And, you know, Second Life has been a proof of that. It has been a better place. So it's at least possible for a million people. I think it can happen for a billion.
0: What do you wish your legacy to be? I mean, you've achieved amazing things and I'm sure you have a lot more to achieve, but what would you like your legacy to be?
1: Well, I think it, it, you know, it's what I'm continuing to work on. I'd like to continue to use technology to build these places that allow people to be together. That's it. I mean, that's it. And we're early in that. I've had a chance to have some impact there, and I think I can have more. And and I think that there can be a future where we really do look back on a fascinating set of improvements to the, to the, to the human uh, experience of each other through. Through these virtual spaces. You know, I'll, I'll leave space exploration or, or you know, or or better governments or whatever to others. But I, I think these virtual places, there's the, still a, a great, an even greater story to be told there. Enough.
0: If you could go back in time to a younger Philip, just before he starts out on his career path, which I know you did very young, what one piece of advice would you offer?
1: Well, it's hard to say that, you know, because I think there's a trade-off that you don't get to kind of play both ways. Like sure, I'd go back and I'd say, don't worry as much. It's all going to work out. (laughs) (laughs) But the people that do amazing things. And I've I've had the pleasure of getting to meet a lot of them, you know, over the years. I mean, I've gotten to meet all of the famous people who are doing remarkable things, at least in technology. And then I've even met some of the other ones. And, you know, they're all motivated by an irrational passion, you know, to do these things or, or some sort of just crazy energy. And so, you know, I wouldn't trade that. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think I've enjoyed the experience I've had. I don't know that I've really tried to twiddle with the knobs that much, except maybe to, you know, just generally kind of warmly congratulate myself on what I'd gotten done and say, keep on going. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I think that that'd be it.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for your time today, Philip. I really appreciate it.
1: It's great. It was great to to be on. That was a lot of fun.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode with Philip Rosedale. Philip doesn't do many interviews, so it was great to sit down and be able to share our wide-ranging conversation in this podcast. If you liked it, please don't forget to like, share, and review. This always means so much to me. And of course, it helps others to find the podcast too. Finally, I wanted to leave you with one of my favourite quotes from Philip. When he was building Second Life, the press and many others would often refer to it as a game. But not Philip. He always knew what he was doing was way more than that. Instead, he would say, I'm not building a game, I'm building a new country. And now, almost 20 years post-launch, and with 1 million active users and a flourishing economy, I would say Philip did that. He made his virtual reality a reality.